You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Over the Rainbow Edition. We're over it. We're over the rainbow. <laughs> are we, though, Nathan? Are we? Well, that's what we're here to do. I'll tell you who was totally over the rainbow. He never even wanted to get onto the rainbow. It was Russell Maloney of The New Yorker. This is the original New Yorker review. I wanted to start with this of The Wizard of Oz. All right. This guy is a grump. He says, fantasy is still Walt Disney's undisputed domain. That was That's the first sentence of the review. No one else can tell a fairy tale with his clarity of imagination, his simple good taste, or his technical ingenuity. This was forcibly borne in on me as I sat, sat cringing before MGM's Technicolor production of The Wizard of Oz, which displays no trace of imagination, good taste, or ingenuity. I will rest my case against The Wizard of Oz on one line of dialogue. It occurs in a scene in which the Wicked Witch is trying to persuade Dorothy, the little girl from Kansas, to part with a pair of magic slippers. The Good Witch interrupts them, warning Dorothy not to give up the slippers, whereupon the Wicked Witch snarls, You keep out of this! Well, there it is. Either you believe witches talk like that, or you don't. I don't. Since the Wizard of Oz is full of stuff (laughs) as bad as that, or worse, I say, it's a stinkeroo. (laughs) The vulgarity. <laughs> one more paragraph. The vulgarity of which I was conscious all through the film is difficult to analyze. Part of it was the raw, eye-straining technicolor applied with a complete lack of restraint, and the gags. Let me give you just one. Dorothy is telling the wizard about the fate of the wicked witch. She just melted away. Dorothy says, "Liquidated, eh?" The wizard comes back quick as a flash. He's a card, that wizard. You ought to hear him ribbing the boys in Dave's blue room some morning. Bert Lahr as the cowardly lion is funny but out of place. If Bert Lahr belongs in the land of Oz, so does Mae West. This is nothing against Lahr or Miss West, both of whom I dearly love. I don't like the singer midgets under any circumstances, but I found them especially bothersome in Technicolor. (laughs) (laughs) That is the end of the review. I just read the New Yorker's entire review. Used the word stinkeroo. (laughs) Stinkeroo. Stink. <laughs> That's not the right musical. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we will have to litigate for you today whether The Wizard of Oz from 1939 is, in fact, a stinkeroo. I am Nathan. That's Ben. He's the preacher who's a teacher of cinema. Hello. And we are doing a series of fantasy books, including The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, over on Sound of Sanity, weirdly. You'd mm-hmm. think we'd be doing that at the booking, but we're doing it on Sound of Sanity while Jake is on his sabbatical. And so we read The Wizard of Oz, and then we thought we would do the two, actually, two of the famous mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz movies. We're not doing The Wiz with Michael Jackson, just because who cares? Didn't want to, don't care. And we are not doing any of the other various Oz-related properties, such as that horrible James Franco thing. But we are going to I'm do... I'm kind of curious now. Uh, it's not good. It's not good. I tells you. I mean, it, it's got some fun stuff, but then it's got James Franco. Just he's a real stinkeroo, and the, <laughs> and and uh, Mila Kunis is the the nice person that ends up being twisted by Franco's uh, abandonment of her into becoming oh, no. the Wicked Witch of the West. It's oh no, I don't want to see this. It's really stupid. I think Eva Green maybe plays the Wicked Witch of the East, and that's kind of good. Eva Green's a good uh, no. There's I I know no. It's, I, it's Rachel Vice. It's Rachel Vice. Yes, I knew it was a stately brunette of some some type with green eyes, which she's fine. But yeah, no, we're gonna do the two good Oz movies. We're doing 
MGM's the the classic The Wizard of Oz. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, and then we're going to do Return to Oz, the cult classic, shall we say? Mm-hmm. And let's go ahead and get to it, folks. First, we need to know what baggage we bring. It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. Ben, what baggage did you bring to The Wizard of Oz? I grew up watching The Wizard of Oz, and I don't even know what else I could say about it. I liked it okay as a kid. I don't remember ever simply loving it as a kid. Mm. Ah, what else could I say? I think on some podcasts, maybe we've cast you or I've cast you as a Wizard of Oz hater, but it sounds like that is not. No, that's not really true. I just think I was only modestly fond of it. That's at least that's my, maybe this is me retconning, but that's, I think that's fair. You liked the books. I did. And I don't, I I forget at what point I discovered the books, but I was, it was definitely like fourth grade or before and liked the books better. Mm -hmm. It's like, yay, the books are like fairy tale adventures and the movie doesn't ever quite, sometimes it almost feels that way, but it doesn't quite. Um, It's more like a stage musical. Right. And stage musicals just weren't my thing. Sound and music, I liked better than The Wizard of Oz, for sure. Sound and music I was would have been the one musical I liked the most as a kid, Eve, although it was overplayed in our home. Like yes. I feel like a lot of kids it was. Yes. It was overplayed, it was long, saw too much of it, that's regrettable. Wizard of Oz, yeah, and at some point fairly early, I don't know how early because I don't know how anyone could have gotten away with this, but at some point fairly early, I saw Return to Oz, which I loved, loved it. Um, Which is a considerably darker take on the It's Oz so mythos. much darker. That's why I can't figure out how young I was because I don't remember being scared. I remember being scared in a, like a way that I appreciated, right? but not in a way that I didn't appreciate. And it seemed like you would have had to catch me at just the right age break to do that. Right. I don't know when that was. So I want to say elementary school at some point. I don't know if that's true. Probably. <laughs> so that's all the baggage I can think of. And then I hadn't seen it since... I was a kid until last night, there you the go. night before recording this podcast. Right. And we're going to find out <laughs> how it held up, whether how it, it played. rose in stature, yeah. whether it diminished, whether you were like, Ugh, and then you started vomiting into a bucket. That's right. A tin bucket. I grew up with Wizard of Oz, like I suppose most people from my generation did, and I've seen it many times and always kind of enjoyed it. it was, I, th- I would put it in the category of things like some of the Disney, the classic animated Disney movies that just seemed like facts of life when I was growing up. And then at a certain point in my 20s, I rediscovered them, reevaluated them, and, and was quite delighted to find, oh, there's a real level of adult skill, of wit, of songwriting craft, of Technicolor, whatever. It was different mm-hmm. for different movies. But for The Wizard of Oz, it's just at a certain point, I went back to it as a film lover and really appreciated the way that it's constructed and the performance that Judy Garland's actually giving. and. The comedic, the time capsule that it is as uh-huh. much as anything. Just the, <laughs> this is what comedy was at the time. This is what stagecraft was at the time. This is what our conception of ourselves was. There's a lot that's fun about it as a mm-hmm. piece of Americana and as a piece of Hollywood history, some of which we'll talk about the context of. I have seen Dark Side of Oz where they slap Pink Floyd on top of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. You, huh. know, you know how that's supposed to. <clears throat> yes, I've heard. I've uh, never done it. So I went and saw a theatrical presentation where you just watch, it's actually 
dire. It was horrible. You watched Wizard of Oz through twice. With, no. No, no, no. You watch Wizard of Oz through once. You have to listen to Dark Side of the Moon twice. So okay. they, they play the album through. So that, that makes more sense. And it maybe kind of matches up and is cute a couple of times. Yeah, sounds uh, terrible. I mean, if you really just want to hear Pink Floyd, then get a CD or something. You don't have to go pay somebody to... Anyway, I do not recommend it. I do not recommend it. I, like most, many people have had fun things where, like, the radio's playing and then it starts matching up with something on the TV and it's, ah, oh, this is cool. But actually paying a ticket price for that and then having to hear, I mean, I like Pink Floyd just fine, but having to hear Dark Side of the Moon twice while watching, while wishing, like, oh, I wish I could hear what was going on in The Wizard of Oz. Just not fun. Nope. So that's my Wizard of Oz baggage let's uh, delve into some context for this work let me explain no there is too much let me sum up you may think you know what you're dealing with but believe me you don't ben do you want to say anything as far as like can you sum up everything that you said about frank l Baum on the other podcast in three sentences or something mm. like that i feel like we should give a little maybe so actual land of oz context here yeah, I might be able to do that. Just a sec. Yeah. People can go listen to that podcast for the full version of this. Yeah. So, well, Frank Baum was an interesting fellow, says I. That's what I says. He got into the children's literature business with a couple, like a book of verse that he did with this political illustrator and became a best-selling author and then wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, as its full title was. Mm-hmm. With, with illustrations by the same guy, and that became the bestseller for two years. This would have been back in a year that I can't remember offhand. But in any case, Baum, Baum was now a big deal. And he, what's the word, parlayed his success in children's literature to the stage, mm-hmm. made a stage musical of The Wizard of Oz that was a Broadway, I think a hit, it was just a hit. But nothing to do with the music or any of the what made it into the movie. Totally unrelated. So Bomb would have been dead 13 years by the time this movie came out. So, yeah, no, this was, but this was a very successful play in its own right. He changed around the plot and the characters from Wizard of Oz to make something better for the stage. <coughs> and wrote another musical for the stage called The Woggle Bug, also an Oz musical that was complete flop. It was very bad for him financially. And then... Because he was still getting lots of requests from kids and because he thought he could make money doing it, he wrote more Oz. So he took the Woggle Bug and he turned it into the next Oz book, which I want to say is Marvelous Land of Oz, or maybe it's Ozma of Oz. I don't remember which is two, which is three. But And then he kept on writing Oz because kids loved it and it was a cash cow. He always intended to stop, but at some point he gave up and was just like, fine. Kids love this. I'm a little bit grumpy, but I'm okay. I'm good with this. And so he wrote 14 Oz books, and then the legacy of Oz, the official canon of Oz, was sanctioned and carried on by the Baum estate through other authors after his death. So you have what's called the famous 40. That's the first 40 Oz books, and they're all, they're canon, and there's a few more canon books added in the 2000s at some point, but there's a ton of Oz stories. And yeah, and that's that's bomb. I don't know what else. Do you want me to say anything biographically about the dude? Like, I think that's probably enough. I mean, we could we should say what the books are and aren't as yeah. regards the movie. I mean, they're, yeah, they're yeah, much yeah. more straight ahead. So I read Wonderful Wizard of Oz for the first time for the for the that other podcast we did mm-hmm. over on Sound of Sanity. It's a, it's much more of a straight ahead fairy tale 
than that's right you'd get the impression of from the movie mm-hmm. um there's like there's action and adventure of a fairy tale kind yeah a lot of times it's this very sort of Grimm's brothers like a lot of times threats will come in threes first they'll yeah. be attacked by this thing then they'll be attacked by this thing then they'll right. be attacked by the third thing Right, there's one kind of thing that the cowardly lion can take care of, and another kind of thing that the tin man can take care of, and then another kind of thing that the scarecrow can take care of. So they'll do that sort of thing, which is very gratifying. Right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You can hear me talk about it on the other podcast. It was weird going back to it, having this movie so firmly fixed in my mind, because it's got its own kind of dry comedy, but it's obviously not as overtly comedic or colorful or like flamboyant in its characterization. It's just a much more fairy tale, like... Right. Not not in a way that's like flat or boring or dry or anything just like different. that. Just different. Just a different flavor. Different flavor. Yeah, I have something to say about the characterizations, but I guess we can wait till we get to our take. So, yeah, that's what these books are. And as they go, Baum fills out the Land of Oz. But the Land of Oz is not a consistent fairy tale world a la Middle Earth. It's not like this happened at this point in the history right. of Oz, and then you trace the lineage of this king to this king, and then this language is developed from this language. No, 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 no. Oz is more like, oh, it's yet another corner of Oz. There's another king. Oh, there are more characters. Here are four more zany characters. Oh, you never heard of this important magical artifact? Well, it's the new most important powerful magical artifact. Oz is just constantly being filled out. Now, it's not that Bomb doesn't care at all about cross-pollinating his stories. He does. He, it's all in the land of Oz. But man, He's not interested in the kind of thing Tolkien was interested in doing at all. It's fairy tale stuff for kids. And this is a fairy tale world where almost any kind of story or character or magical thing could come to life. That's part of the charm of Oz. You read it. It's just, he's just throwing out ideas all the time. And sometimes you're like, I wish you would spend a little more time. (laughs) As an adult, especially, you're like, I wish you'd just given this a little more time or something. But as a kid, I don't know that it matters. It's very episodic. It's very fun. Book to book may vary in quality. I'm going to assume that the Bomb books are the best of, say, the famous 40, not having read the other authors, but gotten an impression that they're just maybe okay. So, but it was easy for other authors to step into because of the kind of world he created. Other authors just came in and they're like, I have 50 ideas too. I'll put them all in this Oz book. Well, to the point of it just being one darn thing after another, Uh without a ton of continuity. The Wizard of Oz, the book, broadly follows the outlines of that the movie follows, but there's just more stuff the lion defeats a giant spider in order to free some villagers they go through a villain land of china people which i think that little part of it was actually used for the james franco film there's these little people made out of china very fragile people Mm -hmm. and there's just these other they have to cross a bridge how will they get across a gorge Mm -hmm. or something like that there's there's just more there's more and and there's really like lots and lots and lots more And when we get to Return to Oz and talking about that, we'll see that it captures a lot of that more feeling. Yes. Yes. What the filmmakers did in this case was they streamlined everything and put it onto a... They took a handful of the things and they made them more important. So instead of the witch just being one thing that Dorothy has to overcome at one place in the book, she becomes the primary antagonist who Mm -hmm. who has a personal vendetta against Dorothy in a way that's never quite that way in The Wizard of Oz. That's right. The, the book. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and yeah, they just, they did the kind of things that I think you'd be tempted to do if you were a Hollywood screenwriter. Like, how can it was we, hard to how, blame them. Yeah, how can we make this into more of an actual story with a character motivation and mm-hmm. a journey from A to B to C as opposed to just you go to this land and you do different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll have more to say about that. But let me give some context on the movie. So the direct inspiration, as the New Yorker guy so sneeringly talked about, the obvious in- inspiration for this that everybody would have been aware of at the time was the massive success of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which was obviously an animated feature and the first full-length animated feature, and that was a lot of what gave it its juice. But it also just, in, in the, the minds of corporate Hollywood bean counters made them think hey people like fantasy stories what are the other big fantasy stories that we can adapt as a matter of fact what are the big other big fantasy stories that we can adapt that are in the public domain and that uh, actually it wouldn't have been in the public domain and at that time i take it back it's in the public domain now what are the other big fantasy stories that we can adapt that have a female protagonist that have danger that have that have some comedy that have all the elements that Snow White has. And you can see how Wizard of Oz in the mind of an evil Hollywood executive would exactly fit the bill down to the fact that we have humorous little people. We have an evil witch. <laughs> we have a female <laughs> protagonist, mm-hmm. a young sort of girl slash woman mm-hmm. creature that's going through this right. adventure. It's just very Snow White. And so MGM got the rights to L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz novel and began planning their adaptation just to, rec- like, to cash in on what Disney was doing with Snow White. And MGM, you have to understand, was the prestige studio at the time. So studios had, then as now, but especially then, they had different characters, different sorts of things that they were known for or they did. So, for example, Universal had their stable of monsters. They had Dracula and Frankenstein and stuff like that. And they were really the horror people. And not a lot of studio, other studios got into the horror business. Warner Brothers had their fast-talking kind of gangster films. And they, Warner Brothers were like of the people. They, wanted to, they made movies about real people with real problems, social issues, pictures. But you know, a little cheaper, a little dirtier, a little bit more feet on the ground, a feeling, black and white, James Cagney, ripped from the headlines kind of stuff. MGM was the dream factory. They were, like, when you think of Hollywood, when you watch, like, a newer movie that's made about old Hollywood and somebody walks into Hollywood, walks onto a studio, and there's, like, a Roman soldier walking by while a showgirl walks past him and you know you pan over and there's some guy in a cowboy outfit smoking a cigarette on break while studio people run around changing backdrops and stuff mgm was the studio that was most like that it was big it was lavish it was expensive it was the dream factor factory they made a lot of the famous musicals of the time this one being the most famous they had a stable of stars that they could draw on and they made these, they, they, they were just, Dream Factory is actually maybe a, a better moniker. They had everybody under contract and uh, Judy Garland, most famously under contract, which we'll talk about. And they could just put together a movie like this. And so, as I've said before, with, with this sort of movie, it's not any one guy's vision. It's not the vision particularly of Victor Fleming, the director. This is This movie is kind of a counterpoint to the auteur theory that there always has to be an auteur who who's who's main if it was anyone you'd say it was Mervyn Leroy the producer but really this is a studio picture made by a studio fact studio factory where they're going to get a lot of different writers actually three directors worked on this movie ultimately Fleming had the best year of his life because he directed this and Gone with the Wind both came out in 1939 but it's precisely because neither one of those was Victor Fleming the director's like his passion project. He didn't have passion projects. He was just the guy that was assigned 
first to Gone with the Wind. And then as soon as that stopped filming, he was shuttled over to work on Wizard of Oz. So there's no sort of one creative voice or person that you can look at. What you can look at is a general attitude of, and I don't know who this originated with, but they had an idea that people didn't really actually, as much as they wanted to take from the success of Snow White, they did not think that people would really buy a fully a full fantasy film. They always felt like they had to hedge their bets on it just being purely fantasy in terms of what the audience would expect. And so they come up with this whole sort of prelude section that doesn't actually have a lot to do with Frank Oldbaum or L. Frank Baum, where Dorothy meets each one of the people that will eventually be. That's the famous mm-hmm. thing. You all know it. You've seen the movie. She's going to meet all the characters that will eventually be characters in her fantasy, but she'll meet them in real life. She'll interact with them. And then those little elements or attributes of their personality will be exaggerated or reflected in what's essentially a dream. That None of that is at all even subtext in in L. Frank Baum, if I remember correctly, nope. she, just, she just goes to a magical world. She gets taken there by a twister. But, she, but you can see them hedging their bets in the way that they constructed this film. They, but unfortunately, they originally hedged their bets way more. So early screenplays of this, it's like the scarecrow isn't even a moving scarecrow. He's like a dumb guy that's been hired to scare crows. Uh, <laughs> the Tin Man is a criminal who was condemned to wear a tin suit. There's a musical number that was actually, those ideas were dropped, I think, before they even started filming, obviously. There's a big musical number that was filmed and cut called The Jitterbug, where the Queen of Oz shows up and she's trying to modernize Oz. And so this leads into a big modern dance number, The the Jitterbug. There was a Scarecrow Dorothy romantic angle, some of which is still in the movie, just in the way that they play things. Originally, when Dorothy wakes up, She's supposed to have a moment with that particular farmhand, whatever the oh, yeah. Hank or whatever the guy uh-huh. that became the Scarecrow, and they're supposed to, you're supposed to get the impression maybe they're going to become a couple, which is weird because this movie it's very unspecific about how old the character is. Actually, you don't know whether she's she looks like she obviously Dor- Judy Garland was 16 and 17 when she filmed this, but she's playing much younger. Yeah, she's playing like. 10. She's playing like 10. Or 12, maybe? But then maybe they, very wisely, I would say, they decided, oh, we should totally cut this scene where she's in love with the scarecrow at the end. But that's that's the kind of thing that we're talking about with the Hollywood studio system, like all these different screenplays flying around, different people working on it, different people with different love of or lack of love of for the genre and for the original books. Um, but they they honed in on something that obviously works for most people uh, and Got there. Uh, then they had to cast their Dorothy. First, they tried to get Shirley Temple, who was the big child star of the time and who in some ways would have made more sense for this movie, at least on paper. She was like a big child star. She would have been the right age to play Dorothy. And she was one of the most popular stars in the world. Um, she was simply not available. They couldn't, make the, they couldn't make the money. The contracts worked out. And so they went with someone that they already had under contract at MGM Judy Garland, and I want to talk about Judy Garland because she is one of the sort of poster children for the for how corrupt early Hollywood actually was. She was really chewed up and spit out by that system in a way that's pretty nasty. She was born at Francis Ethel Gum. I don't know why she didn't stick with that name for 
her stage persona. Wow. And from the age of two, she was singing with her sisters in a vaudeville act. We've been talking a lot about, I think, Chaplin, Keaton, and different people who began in vaudeville. Her parents were both vaudevillians. Vaudeville was just before cinema, the, the traveling. You'd go to a theater and you'd watch people perform. And they'd do drama, they'd do comedy acts, they'd do acrobatic routines, all kinds of things, anything entertaining. Let's go, let's go to the vaudeville and see people. So people could make, have live these kind of nomadic lives, traveling around, performing at different cities. And that's exactly what the, the gums were. And that was the gum sisters. They, apparently, Judy was a natural, or Francis was a natural from the very beginning. Her father was forced to, the, the story that they like to tell was that at two years old, she wouldn't stop singing Jingle Bells at, on a Christmas vaudeville program. And her father had to carry her off after she'd done seven encores. So Hollywood takes all the vaudeville talent. One of the things that's wonderful about this era of movies is that you have all these people that came up as dancers and singers. You have people like the guys that play the three the dudes, her three friends. And they're all obviously, they have training and comedy and dancing and like they have this wide array of skills that they've actually developed on a stage that they can use that makes this movie a lot more fun than if it was like Ryan Gosling trying to pretend like he knew how to dance or something. I hate modern musicals because <laughs> so often they hire stars instead of people who actually have talent. So all these people come from vaudeville, come from comedy, come from live theater and you can tell just in the way that they perform in their acting personas. But Francis Gum got a contract with MGM at the age of 13, which was an incredibly awkward age just from being a performer, which is a really awkward age to become a film star because you're too young for the Shirley Temple parts, for the little girl parts, but you're also, or you're, I'm sorry, you're too, you're too old for those. You're also too young to be like a sort of ingenue. And she wasn't conventionally attractive. So she actually went to school on the MGM lot with people that our listeners may have heard of, like Elizabeth Taylor, like Lana Turner, like these classic beauties. But Judy Garland was not that, which became a huge factor in where her life went because she was constantly reminded of this by the studio executives who were constantly hounding her. You need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. Louis B. Mayer, the president of... MGM called her his little hunchback. And so she's constantly being, she's immediately thrust into this system where she's under contract. She has to make the movies and do the things that they want her to do. And she has to maintain her figure the way that they want her to maintain it and play the kinds of roles that they think are, she doesn't have any power over. She's just a cog in the MGM machine. She starts doing movies with Mickey Rooney, who was a popular star at the time, and they become very popular playing a couple together, and they make these silly movies like Babes in Arms and things like that. Hey, gang, let's put on a show movies, where is almost always the plot where, oh, no, the theatrical agent's going to be in town. I hope that our small town can band together. And it's just an excuse to have all these talented people sing their songs and do little things. But the thing that's immediately apparent about Frances Gum, now name changed to Judy Garland. Garland, I think, was her mother's maiden name. Is that she's really talented. She's a great actress. She's a, just a, a really natural screen performer. Mm -hmm. And she's got this fantastic voice. She can sing. And she can really sing. She can live and own mm -hmm. these songs and pour her spirit into them, I guess you'd say, in, in a way that's really powerful. But she is part of this brutal system that just uses people and so there are stories some of them more credible than others but if the worst is to be believed then she's doing 20-hour shoots where they have her on pep pills to keep her 
awake and going and then she'll be given tranquilizers at the end of that so that she can sleep for four hours or six hours and then she'll go back so this begins a lifelong struggle with her weight a lifelong struggle with drug addiction all of which just happens because she's a depressive person that's stuck becomes a cog in this machine at the age of 13 and never really escapes it um she battles her directors. She battles her co-stars. She's one of, short of Marilyn Monroe, I think she's the famous like Hollywood disaster story. There's been a lot of biopics and not novels, but biographies and things. People love to write about her. She's got a kind of saucy Hollywood story. She went through mm. many marriages. She was married to Vincent Minnelli. At one point, the musical director who did things like Easter Parade with her as his star. They've, of course, had the daughter Liza Minnelli, who became a big star singing star in her own right. But by the 1950s, uh, Judy Garland is massively in debt. She's drug addicted. She's not showing up on time. She ends up being fired from MGM. Um, and then she makes the comeback in A Star is Born, a pretty famous uh, movie mm. now been remade twice. That was act- It was actually a remake. It's been made four times. People love the story. Wow. Uh, so there's an old black and white one. And then Judy Garland probably made the best version in 1954. And then uh, there's the 70s version with Streisand, and then there's the more recent one with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. But one of those evergreen stories, for whatever reason, I don't quite understand the power of that story myself. But Judy Garland probably did appear in the best version, and she's able to use some of the pathos of her life in that particular performance. Mm-hmm. She did not win an Oscar for it, though. Grace Kelly won the Oscar that year for something. And by this time, she's massively in debt. She never really makes another great movie. She does begin a concert career and she has a wonderful relationship with the audience. I mean, she's the kind of person that'll be drugged out and won't show up or will be late for an hour or whatever. But when she gets on stage, she really connects with people and mm. people shout, we love you, Judy. And she's just able to channel her own demons and express her own demons and be vulnerable about, uh, by the end, her voice is gone. She can't even sing, but people still, uh, love to see her. And she finally dies uh, pretty young, I think in, in her late forties of a barbiturates overdose, not intentional, we don't think, but um, in the 1960s. And a lot of people will attribute the entire gay rights movement to her, not because she was gay herself, but because she was a beloved icon of gay people. Even back then, they, huh. they really identified with her brokenness and with her the weird kind of caught between childhood and between adulthood, just Mm. something about her sexuality, something about her brokenness, something about the way that her life spiraled out of control was very meaningful to them. Of course, the rainbow has connections to over the rainbow, her signature tune, which we'll talk about, but the big, the spark that lit the match or the, the match that lit the, Spark, what do I want? The match that lit the fuse for the, gay, the modern gay rights movement is the riots, the Stonewall riots. And a lot of people will attribute those to Judy Garland because she died and then a bunch of gay people were grief stricken and, and, and went to drink at the Stonewall Inn and then police raided that bar and it turned into a riot and sparked the modern hmm. gay rights movement. So she's very beloved by a lot of very mm-hmm. demented, quote unquote, progressive Right. People for that reason, I don't know how she would feel one way or another about that. Is mm. I don't think she intentionally was, you know, courting that exactly. I think they just found something in her sort of weird outsider insider 
I don't know. Maybe it is something about the fact that she's a she's an adolescent playing a kind of prepubescent. Maybe there's something that people like that in, specifically responded to in Wizard of Oz and a few of her other movies where she played these kinds of faux innocent kind of characters. Hmm. But in any case, she is cast here. And I'll go ahead and finish the story of Judy Garland. Like, I, I want to circle back and talk more just about the production of Wizard of Oz. But let me talk about her time on Wizard of Oz just so we can get all the depressing stuff mm-hmm. out of the way <laughs> up front. Uh, she had a pretty bad time on Wizard of Oz because uh, she was taking pep pills to stay awake and then taking tranquilizers to sleep. And there's a lot of stories that may or may not be true about abuse that she received about <laughs> actually interestingly enough about the munchkins getting handsy with her all these munchkins being people who only come up to her waist but are many of them 50 year old men or you could see how that could go south pretty Hmm. easily um there are there's a story about her not being able to respond well to the cowardly lion when he's supposed to be scaring her and uh, victor fleming the director slapping her across the face so that she'll give the right response Judy Garland mostly was pretty, she was actually not as down on the Hollywood system as I'm making it sound like she should have been. She did not tell all these stories during her own life. Some of it's stuff that sort of film archaeologists have dug up. Some of it's stuff that her estranged husband, various estranged husbands put in their biographies. So the extent of how much real abuse, I mean, there's kind of a market for these kinds of salacious stories too. So it's possible that Maybe it wasn't as bad as all that, or maybe it was worse. I don't know. We'll never, we'll never really know. There are stories about Louis B. Mayer, the president of MGM, trying to proposition her, all kinds of stuff. But we don't really know. She was mostly thankful for Wizard of Oz and for its place in her career and for, she wasn't one of these people that tried to disown the thing that made her popular. She, for the rest of her life, would sing Over the Rainbow. It was her signature tune. Along with what's that Christmas? The, there's a Christmas song from from Meet Me in St. Louis that everybody knows. There's bang, bang, bang went the trolley. But there's also uh, I've never seen that. Yeah, never but you would it. you would know the song. Okay. I mean, if I just put in Judy Garland Christmas, it's like one of the it gets played every year. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. That's what it is. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. That is Judy Garland. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. So if you've ever heard that song at Christmas time, which you, which you, which you have. So that is the story of Judy Garland and her time. Sad story. One of the, one of the sadder stories from that era of Hollywood. Huh. But and as to how that should affect our enjoyment of this movie, I don't know. She's quite luminous in it. It cannot be denied. Anyway, the movie. You've got Ray Bolger, who was originally cast as the Tin Man, and you have Buddy Ebsen, who was, these are both like comedic dancing stars of the time, as the Scarecrow. Bulger really wanted to play the Scarecrow, and so he talked Ebsen into skipping, and then Ebsen had an allergic reaction to the toxic aluminum dust in the Tin Man outfit, and so he had to be replaced. Interestingly enough, he, his voice, the final Tin Man, sang the song like for his individual number they re-recorded that but they did not bother re-recording the group songs like we're off to see the wizard where they're all singing so it's actually the original actor's voice and that stuff wc fields if people know him the famous comic was the original choice for the wizard but they couldn't work out a fee and so they just got frank morgan a contract player with mgm to be the wizard and he was just some guy that was around that 
they could plug into these kinds of roles. He's obviously quite good here, in my humble opinion. They had to do the, a huge talent search to find little people to play the Munchkins. They had an actress lined up, Gail Sorgengard, to play the Wicked Witch of the West. The Wicked Witch of the West was originally supposed to be a more glamorous character in the vein of the Wicked Queen from Snow White. Oh. It's kind of a beautiful, oh. evil lady. But at a certain point, they, they shifted to evil old hag, and then this actress wanted nothing to do with it. She did not just want to play an evil old hag, so she decided that she would shuffle into history forgotten, while Margaret, Margaret Hamilton will, of course, always be remembered uh-huh. as the Wicked Witch. The movie begins being filmed by a dude named Richard Thorpe. I think he goes very slowly and does very poorly and gets replaced within a week. Then George Kukor of the Philadelphia story takes over. His big contribution is to set the tone. He helps Judy Garland like she was wearing a wig at the time and playing much more little girl. And he said, no, 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 get rid of the wig. Don't be so arch. Just be yourself. And so she did what she ended up actually doing. And he was he's probably pretty smart because this movie already borders on self-parody in the way that she plays Dorothy, I, although I think she's quite good. But you can see how it could very quickly get tiresome if she was being any more little girlish. Victor Fleming comes in to direct, is assigned, like I said, he's a studio dude, a workman. He is most famous for doing this and Gone with the Wind in the same year and making two of the great Hollywood classics. 1939, by the way, the great year of Hollywood we've already talked about. Gunga Din came out that year and a bunch of other classics. But Gunga Din's the one we've talked about, even though it's not necessarily a classic. There's all kinds of fun stories and crazy Hollywood was irresponsible stories. Margaret Hamilton suffered horrible third degree burns mark the scene where she appears in munchkin no it's where she disappears in munchkin land there's this big poof of flame that comes up as she disappears cackling into the ether and apparently her makeup caught on fire her green makeup and so she had to go to the hospital and she's fine and had a nice career after that but it's just like the kind of stupid thing that happened if anyone knows the urban legend that used to be popular in my day, at least, of the munchkin hanging himself, the, the idea that you can uh-huh. see the shadow of a munchkin hanging himself, completely false and much easier to believe in video. I, I, I actually remember finding the still frame on an old video cassette as a kid and wondering about it. But now you watch it on Blu-ray or 4K or something and you can see it's just a reflection of the apple tree guy doing his thing before huh. he... Um, this movie was very influential in terms of using all the most newest to date, newfangled special effects. People may know pretty famously that the Twister, quite effective special effect in my opinion, awesome. is the Twister is was just a muslin cloth, like essentially a sock that they're they're filming. Obviously, lots of matte paintings. Obviously, lots of painted backgrounds and stuff like that. The only other special effect that's maybe worth talking about is they didn't have digital digital technology to achieve the Dorothy is in sepia and then in the same shot she opens the door and Oz is in color so the way that shot was achieved was actually by having a stand-in painted in black and white or sepia and then painting the set like like you're you're seeing things all done in camera there actually so you have an actress and a set that's painted to look like it's black and white in that one shot and then she opens it up goes out of frame we see the beautiful technicolor oz and then judy garland in her non-painted outfit steps into <laughs> oz now i think there might be a little extra digital touch-up that like the dvd people like the modern owners huh. of the film have done to maybe sweeten that scene just a little bit um for blu-ray and 4k and stuff like that sometimes they will do that 
um, just because, and I, in that particular case, I don't know that I mind that much. It's so that's an iconic scene. You want to want it to hit the way it's supposed to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, the film did come in at over two hours. Luckily, they decided we are going to remove the jitterbug number as well as that stupid love subplot. Both smart decisions. They also argued a lot about whether we should cut over the rainbow, which is of course inconceivable now. But, yeah. you, but you can understand how if you're just a studio executive, hey, let's not spend so much time on boring, mundane problems in the real world. Let's get to it. Let's cut this long sort of sad number and just get to the comedy and the color and the action and stuff like that. So MGM, all the kind of evil suits were in favor of killing it. But the argument was won by whoever. And we, of course, have Over the Rainbow, which won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Garland also won a special Academy Award, not specifically for Wizard of Oz, but for it and Babes in Arms and a few other things, maybe like for the best juvenile lead of the year. Just Mm. a weird special. The legend that people like to say is that this movie was not at all successful, that it was basically a box office bomb. And then it became popular on TV. The same thing that people like to say about It's a Wonderful Life. Right. It's not entirely true. This movie actually did just fine on its first release, but just like the stories you hear now about the latest Disney movies flopping, it was just too expensive. It didn't make its money back. It was, they poured so much money into doing this thing that even though it was Mm -hmm. pretty, it was successful on its first run, it just didn't make its money back. And it didn't really go into profit until 1949, 10 years later with a re-release earning some more money. And then, of course, when television was invented and they needed to show movies, they began to show this movie. I think there's a famous 1956 airing that everybody tuned in for. And then it became one of those perennial Hollywood favorites, like It's a Wonderful Life, that they would just air once a year when there were only three stations. And everybody, like Mm -hmm. my parents' generation, very much think of, or even their parents, think of this movie that way. Like it was just a staple of every holiday or whatever. Mm. Like I... Even when I was growing up, there were a couple like that. It's a Wonderful Life came on every Christmas. The Ten Commandments came on every Easter. Not so much it's this, not so much Wizard of Oz. But but it certainly gained its cultural cachet that way through televised repeats, which is ironic because that means that during a lot of the early mid-century, many kids would have seen this movie all in black and white and wouldn't have understood some of the things that are most striking about watching the movie when you watch it properly. Um, and wouldn't have got the horse of a different color joke. So that's a tragedy. Obviously, the movie is beloved by everybody now. It's one of those things where there's Wizard of Oz collectors and merchandise, dolls, figurines, ha- Halloween costumes, snow globes. The A pair of the ruby slippers sold in an auction for 600 and This is interesting. $666,000. Must be... The work of some dark force there. Uh, her blue, oh. her blue checkered pinafore dress sold for over a million. Obviously, there's been cartoons, films, stage adaptations. There's the black musical The Wiz, done by our old friend Sidney Lumet with Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. And there's Wicked, the highest, one of the highest grossing Broadway musicals of all time. And I'd say these things uh, are pretty solidly riffing more on the mgm movie than they are uh-huh. the oz i don't really know if that's entirely true for wicked because no wicked of- wicked is more like a deep dive a mm, uh, new take on oz lore right but they're certainly at least cashing in on the the sort of cultural yeah. cachet of, oh, of, of wizard of oz more than Definitely. Uh, of the mgm film more than they are definitely the books and so yeah that's it's one of those movies that 
It does different things for different people. It, a little bit like Tolkien is beloved by Christian conservatives and also beloved by tree-hugging liberal goofballs that find all of their politics <laughs> and some of the things that were inherent in Tolkien's particular picadillos and stuff about trees and stuff. This, this is a similar, I think, in that it's a beloved children's film that very sort of family-friendly people like with families, but it's also Judy Garland is a gay icon and Over the Rainbow is taken on more than one meaning. And I don't think the movie is so inherently that you have to feel like it's been corrupted. I don't think it has been. Anyway, it's The Wizard of Oz. It's a movie, which we will now talk more about and give our point of view on it. Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. A new fantastic point of view. Good as a point of view, anyway. Good as a point of view, Ben. Hey, it's good to know. Emperor Palpatine himself. That's my point of view. It's good. It's your point of view that it's good to know that... Good as a point of view. Moral relativism is a thing. Yeah. I guess it is good to know that moral relativism is a yeah. thing. I'd agree with that. Well, speaking of relativism, Dorothy is Auntie M's relative in this very film. That's a good point, too. That we are discussing. So we've gotten to the point of view. I guess the question to tackle here, we have our our own opinions on Wizard of Oz, but maybe first we should just discuss like why it's always interesting to watch a movie like this and contemplate like why this? Why is this the iconic beloved touchstone for generations? Why do people love this movie so much? Yeah, it's weird. I was thinking about that and I was thinking I'm actually not sure. <laughs> and then I just started thinking of all the ingredients, and that has to account for some of the reason. And you got your songs, mm-hmm. especially over the rainbow. Right. You got the cool special effects. Yeah. You got all the colors, and you got the contrast between black and white and color sections of the film. And you've got comedy, you got a fantasy quest, you got these kind of these very visually iconic characters and moments. You have a great performance by Judy Garland. You put all those things together, you get this movie. Yeah. But I don't know if that really answers the question. Yeah, I don't know whether it does either. I never quite know. It's like you put these notes together, you get... Why does everyone know that as opposed to other Beethoven pieces you could name that aren't as well known but, you know, are just as technically good or... Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the pixie dust that makes a certain thing? And and is it just an accident of history? Did this movie just hit at the right time? Is it just like one generation was like, Technicolor sure is neat. And then they passed it on to the next generation and they kind of got brainwashed into loving it. And then they got brainwashed again. Yeah, or... I didn't, I don't know that I grew up loving this movie. That's yeah. the thing is I saw it a bunch of times. I had a certain respect for it. Got an enjoyment out of certain pieces of it. But I don't know that I just loved it as a kid, and maybe I can't remember, but that's what I think. Well, as we're going to talk about, you're more of a return to the Oz man. (laughs) Yes, which is a very different kind of movie. Which is a very different kind of movie. Has a little bit more of a melancholy, has a little bit more of a, I don't know, it's it's more of a straight up adventure, I guess. It's more of a straight up adventure. Feels more dangerous, more real, more tactile. That's right. More of a straight up fairy tale kind of situation. This movie is a weird combination of things. It's like... Well, maybe Oz is all just a a drama in Dorothy's head. Right. A really weird one. Right. Uh, But it's still a weird combination of parts. Mm -hmm. 
black and white stuff and the Oz stuff, what's the relation really? Not a lot. <laughs> yeah. They really are totally separate. I love the Oz material, the the early material in in not I'm sorry, not the Oz material. Oh, the okay. uh, Kansas. the Kansas yeah. material. Like that feels like a movie that I would actually watch all the way yeah. through. Just to, I agree. This, this community navigate finally deciding what to do about Elmira Gulch and her iron hold on their land or whatever. I don't know what the movie would actually be about. There's this little girl coming of age in this sort of desolate Kansas landscape with her three kind of farmhand pals. Well, it feels somehow archetypal. Maybe it just captures hope in the face of the Great Depression. Right. Or something like that. But it just simplifies the whole world. You got your farm. You got your farmhands. You got your bad lady in the town. You've got your little girl who wants a well, kind of little girl who wants a to wants to be happy. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got this uh, fraudster with a heart of gold, right? Hanging around. Uh, you've just got all you've just got all this stuff that feels like of one piece and texture, and, and sets, sets the stakes of the world very clearly and easily. Yeah, and it's such a primal sort of Americana down to. Doctor, what's his name? I can never remember his name. What's what's uh, Oz's name in Kansas? Uh, Professor Marvel. There you go. Down to Professor Marvel's wagon with the weird voodoo stuff inside it, the crystal uh-huh. ball and stuff. It just feels all very turn of the century, or not? I guess this is 1930s, but but it has that kind of primal plains Americana feel, and it lends, I would say, the whole, the entire movie a weight that you could argue whether it actually deserves because once you get into the Oz stuff and I, I love this movie. I love the, I love all of it, but it does become a musical review at a certain point. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's less about the fairy tale. It's like this movie has a cool setup for a fairy tale. And then it has a pretty primal, I'd say fairy tale ending with the monkeys and the witch yeah. and some of that stuff. But the, Stuff in between where she's meeting her friends, it's very much like a vaudeville review or something where each person's going to have their song and they're great songs and each person's going to have their dance and they're great dance. Like you're watching a bunch of performers at the peak of their powers, Mm -hmm. but it's not. uh, So have you ever read any of the grumpy letters and things that that still exist that Lewis and Tolkien wrote about Disney movies? No. So they were really grumpy about like I think it was Lewis. Maybe it was Tolkien, I forget. One of them really hated Snow White. Even though when we watch Snow White, I think it feels pretty archetypal mm-hmm. yeah. and like it's keyed into what makes a fairy tale a fairy tale. But all those guys could see was, well, sure, yeah, you've got a, an evil witch that's done about as well as you could do her. But then you've got these bumbling dwarves with their stupid mm-hmm. Broadway song and they're like falling on their behinds. And it's just uh-huh. like, it's very low comedy. And mm-hmm. these guys are like... You know, Tolkien especially, I think, was like, These, this is not a dwarf. These are the Delvers. The, you know, the mm-hmm. pe- like he has an idea for myth of what these little people should be. But instead, Disney just sees them as comic relief, comic relief clown type characters. Right, right. And they, those guys found those sorts of things pretty offensive. I do not think that criticism really tracks for me onto something like Snow White. But it maybe tracks a little bit more onto something like Wizard of Oz, where it's like, well, we're not actually getting a lion. We're getting a funny comedian from the time Uh doing some lion shtick right or something like that yeah and so but then you got the munchkins yes and the munchkins would fit that criticism of tolkien's Mm -hmm. more easily yeah i don't what is there what should we say about the munchkin land 
the lollipop guild makes me laugh. Yes. And otherwise, it's just a, it's weird because everything's in color, but everything also looks as plastic as it ever looks in Oz. Yes, I will say, and it's fake. So I watched this movie in 4K, and I'm not actually. In, I think in for some some places that really did it amazing favors, like just the green of the witch's face, the ruby slippers. There was stuff like that that mm-hmm. just really popped. That was amazing, but also. You could see every joint, every misaligned screw, every sort of like painted backdrop. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it, it, it's like when I watched this movie, presumably on TV or on VHS as a kid, this felt much more like a world as opposed right. to a very well built MGM stage somewhere. Mm-hmm. Watching it, there's certain movies that maybe high definition doesn't do any favors. I'm, I'm not sure where I fall on that for this one. Oh. But it's, but for Munchkinland, boy, those flowers feel like plastic it really feels like you're on a disney ride or something like that like Mm -hmm. in small world or something like that yeah and then you get the munchkins themselves are simply played for comedy which i can understand why you take that idea from the book and do that but also this makes it feel extra artificial yes i mean there's nothing much to the munchkins one way or another in the book there's not. not are they even small Man, I just read it and I can't even tell you. But yeah, I think that they are. I think that they're relatively short people. Yeah. It's part of the idea. You do have a nice scene in the book where Dorothy <clears throat> stays overnight at a farm and yes. there's a party in her honor and there's dancing and it gives you a sense that these people have a community. Something more like the Shire, I guess. The, yeah, I mean, it's just very, shire. it's very archetypal. Like you go to a fairy land and you meet the peasants who are mm-hmm. under a spell or something right. like that. Right. It's, it's very much... In that line, you're going to stay with the old lady and her family, mm-hmm. and the farmhands are going to come in, and you're going to talk and trade gossip, and you can stop at any house along the r- way, and if they're good people, they'll invite you in for a meal. It's like that feeling of mm-hmm. munchkinness, where as this is more like, I don't know, mm-hmm. yay, we're munchkins putting on a show. Huh. I like the relative cheeky darkness of the song that they're singing i like how much it's about verifying that this witch is actually dead and they have a lot of fun with that that that, that is a lot of fun in a comedic 1930s kind of a way but yeah i would say for me the munchkins is probably the least successful part of this movie i certainly i understand people love wizard of oz it's great i'm i I don't want to level like gotcha wizard of oz took you down a pay you know that's that's not what i'm saying here i'm just saying for my money, I like Dorothy's friends. I like the witch. I like the wizard. I like Emerald City, all that stuff. But Munchkin Land has always felt maybe just a little bit off-putting to me, even mm-hmm. as a kid. It's like the Lollipop Guild or the Lollipop League. <laughs> Lollipop Guild. The, it or, is. No, it's the Lullaby League. The Lullaby League. And the Lollipop Guild. The Lollipop Guild. And I just feel, like, even as a kid, I think I felt embarrassed for those adult human males that have to uh-huh. be part of the Lollipop Guild. So it's Lullaby League and Lollipop Guild. I think that's right. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I'm glad they got the work, I guess. And what other kind of work was there lying around for them at that time? I don't know. Maybe I know some munchkins were very proud of it and other munchkins were less proud of it. But yeah, I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, that's enough criticism. Let's circle back around to something that I think we probably both like, which is before we leave Kansas, we got to talk about Over the Rainbow. Yeah. Now that is another thing that is hugely iconic. And you, maybe you don't have to ask why as much with this one because 
it's just a terrific song. I don't know. What do you think mm-hmm. about Over the Rainbow? Yeah, it's a terrific song. I guess that the point in the movie is that you think you're going to get over the rainbow and you get over the rainbow and it's a, even Fairyland has lots of troubles and horrors and it's better that you be home. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It just works emotionally. It does still feel like a, its own, in a sense, standalone thing. Right. It's just associated with Dorothy's journey into Oz. Does it really have anything to do with Oz except as what I just said? Right. Uh, was that even there? I, I don't even know how to think about it, the way that they built it into the film. I think it lends the movie a weight. It's it's a little bit like Luke standing in front of the twin sons mm-hmm. and, and then John Williams mm-hmm. doing George Lucas the biggest favor that anyone ever did him, just uh, uh-huh. leaning on that beautiful force theme as he looks into the twin th- sons. And it gives the whole movie mm-hmm. a kind of portent, a kind of weight, a kind of feeling of, of yearning, of longing, of whatever that maybe isn't actually there otherwise. But it's like you put that piece into the puddle, into the puddle. <laughs> into you put that puddle. piece into the puddle. That's what I think about this movie. <laughs> you put that piece into the puzzle and suddenly it, it's like uh-huh. suddenly you've given, you've put that color on your painting and right. it's changed the whole nature of the piece. I think it does kind of make this movie a movie about, it's an obvious thing to say, but this is one of those mov- movies as a touchstone for pre-adolescence, for the longing that you feel to grow up, to find your destiny, but also combined with the comfort for of home that you want. I mean, uh-huh. it's there. there is that weird feeling that you get when you're 11 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old. I don't know, sometimes you get it when you're 40 years old. That feeling of wanting something more, uh-huh. but also wanting the comforts of what you have. And especially at that age, you're sort of caught between those two things. And I think the way that most high schoolers facilitate putting together those two feelings, one of yearning for something more and one of yearning for the comfort of mommy and daddy, is they find a group of friends. Um, and so you could make a lot of hay, I think, with how, with the, what, the the semiotics of what this movie is doing, the the sort of pre-adolescent yearning of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, none of which would really be all that felt, except for that you have this wonderful song. And you have in Judy Garland, someone who did suffer, who never had a real childhood, who never had a, a real adulthood, who was caught her whole life, as I talked about, in perpetual mm-hmm. adolescence in a bad way. Not that there was a good way to be caught in perpetual adolescence, mm-hmm. I guess. But you have someone who brings real pathos beyond what the movie is actually asking of her um, to this material. And so, yeah, I think it's I think it's a great song. Yeah, it's a great song. Um, I think it also, I think about Oscar Hammerstein's rules about simplicity in songwriting what he said what sondheim actually said he taught hammer hammerstein taught him because hammerstein was sondheim's guru or whatever he said you have to have the humility as a lyricist to let the composer do the heavy lifting where necessary and so you can come up with the most clever beautiful well-conceived lyric but if it gets in the way of the music then you're not doing your job. And so the, the famous example from Hammerstein's oeuvre is the opening number from Oklahoma, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, which the lyrics are, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, Oh, What a Beautiful Day, Oh, What a Beautiful Feeling. I've Got a Beautiful I've Feeling. I've Got a Beautiful Feeling, yeah, which are dumb, like banal lyrics. But you put uh-huh. them together with, what's his face, Hammerstein and uh, what's Rogers. Rogers. With Rogers' music, mm-hmm. and suddenly you've got a transcendent 
piece of theater and a transcendent piece of cinema when they made the mm-hmm. movie. And it's having the it's having a good collaborator who can bring that kind of power, but it's also knowing when to hold back. And somewhere over the rainbow, I think is similar. If you just look at it on paper, somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Mm-hmm. Like it's it threatens to be inane, but also those simple lyrics can be bolstered and undergirded by mm-hmm. a great melody. And then you have yeah. you add the additional ingredient of Judy Garland and the pathos and the real yearning that she seems to have as a person. And you just, you do get magic. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I'm a little bit hesitant when people talk about, people will talk in very mystical terms about what an actor brings or where the actor was in their life or, Uh and I'm I'm always just kind of like, I don't care how they got there. It's actually what's on the screen. It's what happened when the camera was recording and how it was edited together and like sometimes it can be purely technical sometimes the person wasn't living or imbuing the character with anything but they just knew Mm -hmm. where to stand and what facial expression to make and how to contort the muscles in their face such that you have you as an audience member have an emotional response to what they're doing like it can be totally devoid of spirit but then there is also some kind of juju that comes through who a person is and where they're at in their life and what they're at. And you don't have to know anything about Judy Garland, I don't think, to realize that she just brings sadness and pathos to this that wouldn't necessarily be like if you, you could, we, we said Shirley Temple was going to, was the other person. Yeah, the you, you, wanted. you could see, yeah, you could just see it not working. Yeah, you could see it being inane, mm-hmm. in fact. Okay, so where were we? So we've gotten, I guess I guess we should mention the famous transition from sepia to color, which is an amazing yeah, moment. Yeah, great. It still plays, by the way. But then, and then you've got lots of iconic lines. Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the witch. You've got the witch. You've got the witch. And she is not finding hidden depths in this character or bringing any additional pathos or (laughs) anything. She is just a witch, (laughs) just a witch and cackling and self-satisfied about about his fairy tale. Yeah. Which as you could get. All right. Which sidebar W I T H. Which one? (laughs) Who's on first? No. W I T C H sidebar. What, why is a witch one of the most iconic villain types of all time, Ben? <laughs> Twisted femininity, Nathan. Twisted femininity. I was hoping you might say that. Where were you? <laughs> <laughs> Twisted motherhood. Twisted motherhood. An evil mother that wants to destroy, uh, devour. Yeah, I mean, it's the same kind of idea as the evil stepmother mm-hmm. in a fairy tale. Right. It's like the mom that you shouldn't have. Right. Who's she's like the anti mom, right? She wants to destroy you instead of nurturing you. And now, stepmother is more maybe a, a, a notch down from fantasy, right? The evil stepmother, I mean. But oftentimes they go together, like evil stepmothers yeah. can be witches. Can be witches, or, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So I guess that's the most basic. I mean, not to be too sort of C.S. Lewis about this whole thing, but there's no such thing as perfect evil. There, there is evil that is. A, a derivation or a corruption of something good. And so when you look at a monster, like one of the things that makes the iconography of a vampire so powerful is that he is seductive, that Dracula, 
represents a kind of male potency that also exists mm-hmm. to destroy and corrupt. And so if you, if you want to know what makes a monster a monster, you don't just start like, like if you take the an example of a human monster character like Hannibal Lecter, the thing that makes him scary isn't that he's a cannibal. The thing that makes him scary is that he's a very intelligent and well-spoken mm-hmm. and suave, suave sort, of. sort of cannibal. It's like you put, you take a bunch of things that are good and you mm-hmm. put them together with something that's really twisted and evil. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you have a an, monster, a monster. And I think a witch, I don't know what the good thing is. I mean, there's nothing good about a witch. She's just a devouring, cackling old hag. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, you are taking something that should be and twisting it. You're taking the feminine desire to nurture, to mm-hmm. give life. And you're saying, hey, what if we just flip that on its head? And we had a female monster that existed to take life and to what's the opposite of nurture um <laughs> <laughs> taking life is the opposite of nurturing i guess right yeah i mean i guess the other thing about it is people's uh, i don't know this is like the most politically incorrect thing maybe i'll ever say on one of our podcasts that can't be true i'm sure no. i've said many things no more but people's faces do tend to reflect their character actually and so there is a kind of person who's given themselves to wickedness and has become uglier and uglier and you can see it in their face and so the archetype of ugly old hag ugly old hag that wants to destroy you a person whose appearance very much matches their inner life is something that that is real now it's also true that people can sometimes there's an ugly duckling that's got a great heart and that beauty's only skin deep and like i'm not trying to contradict any of that i'm just saying kids before they've been taught not to, can actually sometimes see like, oh, that adult is ugly mm-hmm. and therefore they're scary. Like they, kids will actually make those kinds of value judgments very quickly. We, right. we learn to, to be more polite and not to make those things, but those kinds of judgments. But a, a witch as archetype taps into that primal fear we have of mm-hmm. someone who's been corrupted both in flesh and in their heart. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. I think kids do do that. Um. All right, so what do, do do good witches bother you in this kind of thing? Good witches no. are always. Do you have a problem with good witches? I don't know. I don't think I would write a good witch. No, I so wouldn't. In that, in that yeah. sense, I do. It doesn't bother me enough to not watch the movie. Right. I just accept that there's. I mean, it's kind of like the original Wonderful Wizard of Oz book bomb is going to put in all these good witches, and mm-hmm. there's something feministy about it, as we talked about on that podcast. Right. So you, you can connect it with his mother-in-law, who was a prominent feminist advocate at the time. And it's like a not-so-great way of talking about the beauty and power of women. Mm-hmm. It's making them into a good witch. Right. I'm like, yeah, I, I understand the good beauty and power of women as God made them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should link that with being witch. So right. it's like I disagree on... A moral and archetypal level with yeah, doing that. It's, it's like I don't mind the idea of a magical matriarch that mm-hmm. has a kind of benevolent feminine power, but I just don't want to call that a witch. Like I think, right. that's, I think that's where I run into it. It's almost a language problem. It's like yeah. you're taking from one archetype and trying right. to graft it onto another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little transgressive to do that yes. on purpose, and that is a f- very feminist kind of tactic. Right, exactly. So, And so... Well, I think what we're saying is The Wizard of Oz is a gateway to evil. And your children should not watch this film. Yeah. Also, monkeys don't talk. 
Come you? on, people. Come on, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dorothy goes down the yellow brick road to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We hear he is a whiz of, wi- of a whiz. If ever a whiz there was. Yes. Wherever, wherever a whiz there was, the Wizard of Oz is one. Because That's actually my favorite lyric, I think, from this whole thing. I really like the little, the whatever. The alliteration? The alliteration and the rhyming on top of it's each other. Great. It's pretty fun. She meets her three friends, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion. Yeah. I tried to watch this movie with my young two-year-old daughter, arguably a mistake, but maybe not a mistake that is unsympathetic because she got through the witch just fine, didn't care. But I'll tell you, the second we got to the Scarecrow, she started to freak out. And once he started, once he got down and started (laughs) dancing and singing about how he wished he had a brain, Mm -hmm. she totally lost it and said, turn it off, turn it off, scared, scared, whatever, whatever (laughs) she can say in her two-year-old language, which was... That's amazing. Very interesting. I guess it was, he just fell into the uncanny valley or something. I don't. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's like a doll coming to life. Right. It's just like not right. Yeah. There's something not right about it. Yeah. Something about and there it is a crazy makeup design where you can't quite tell where when mm-hmm. it stops becoming the guy's actual face and starts right. becoming. It's a great makeup a, design. Uh, who is your favorite of the three? Oh, Dorothy Scarecrow. Friends? Of course. Scarecrow. Yeah. Yes. And what is your evidence for this point of view? My evidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, my evidence that he's the best is that. He's the funniest, and he has the most character arc. Yes. And he just gets to do more stuff right. than the other two. Uh, Tim Woodman gets the least stuff to do and the least character to be. And the Cowardly Lion is... He's funny. He's funny. He, I think he's a little on the verge of annoying to me. Mm-hmm. It's a good shtick. Right. But... He wants you to put him up. He wants you to put up your hands. Right. I like that. That was really funny. <laughs> that made me laugh quite quite a bit. I didn't remember that scene as well from when I saw this movie as a kid. I mean, it is very just like, now we're doing shtick. Now we're doing shtick. <laughs> now we're doing old-timey shtick. It was an old-timey then, but for better or worse. I mean, my dad always laughed at the Cowardly Lion, so I have fond reminiscences uh-huh. of the Cowardly Lion. Right. And, but yes, he is very silly. He is very silly. Uh, I think for my money, Scarecrow, obviously the best, the most like the book, the most sort of. Yeah. You, I think for a kid and for an adult watching it, but especially for a kid, the Scarecrow is the one where you can both, you can most see the irony that Baum built into the uh-huh. book, the, the idea that actually he's had a brain all along. Uh-huh. Uh, the Scarecrow does that sort of thing well, whereas the lion is, uh, you know, alternately a scaredy cat no pun intended, or uh, brave as the script requires it. And then I don't even know what the Tin Woodsman's deal is as conceived. In the yeah, movie. I think that they just didn't have time to have him have a deal or something. He wants a hot. Hot. He, he says that they got the guy that had that accent to say the word hot over and over again. If I only had a hot. Maybe they all have that accent, actually. Maybe that's just like every comedic oh, male uh, actor. I don't know. That guy's more pronounced. Yeah, he's... Very pronounced. I mean, his dilemma was never very resonant with me as a kid, and it still isn't. Watching it now, I'm like, what does he want? What do these filmmakers think that the Tin Wood... Again, not criticisms, folks, just observations. You can help helping you to enjoy this wonderful movie. What What is his deal? What's his deal in the book? His deal in the book is that he wants to feel things. He does. He used to be in love with this woman, and he wants to get that back. Right. And he also is just... He's worried. He's the same thing as the other two. He's worried that he's not kind enough. Right. He'll, like, step on a bug and start crying and be like, oh, if I only had a heart, I would be more careful. Excuse me. Hot. Hot. It's really funny. It's very charming in the book. I think that in the book, actually, 
you like, all, at least I reading it, I liked all the characters just about as much. Or at least I didn't like like one a ton more than the others. I, I just liked them all. Didn't want them to really get to gets a bump up in the book because oh, he, he's got that axe. He gets to use it. He gets to use it. He gets to do all kinds of action hero type stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's funny. And you've got the irony of him crying when stepping on a bug, but then just unconcernedly killing 40 wolves that yep. try to eat Dorothy. Yeah, no. he, just, he just doesn't even think to shed a tear. For, <laughs> so you got <laughs> stuff like that. That's pretty fun. Yes. Very fairy tale. Right. So. Yeah. I, it's a, he's, he, it's a, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's great. He's wonderful. But the Scarecrow, obviously, the best. I will say both the Scarecrow and the Coward and the Tin Man have cool dances in this movie. The Scarecrow has that lanky yeah. kind of stuff he does. That's really cool. And then the Tin Winsman has that really funny, I don't know what you'd call it, a dance where you kick your legs, whatever those are called, that he does. And then he does the leaning thing and stuff. Uh-huh. And it's quite charming. Yeah, it's great. I do like old movies like this just for... Like MGM had a lot of money and they could hire people that had real talent and they could get them to do talented stuff. And so it's not just like Robert Downey Jr. stood in front of a green screen and a bunch of other people painted stuff in. It's like, no, these people could really dance and sing and Uh fight and like swing on vines. And not that anyone swings on a vine, I don't think in this movie. Not in this movie. But whatever's required of them, they could do. Now, I will say, I I do want to say this. If you... Get a little bit of a, if you're a sort of a cosmopolitan, a man of the world or a woman of the world enough to sort of feel like maybe there's a little strain of humor at the expense of men being a feat, a little gay humor in this, I would say you're correct. Cause they have that joke about the cowardly lion when he sings that weirdly placed song in right. Emerald City. Mm-hmm. He talks about being a, a dandelion, yeah. which is like, he's gay. He's, he doesn't want to be gay. That's what he's saying. That's the subtext. That's the intentional subtext of that joke. People knew what it was to be light in the loafers, as they would have said back then. Hmm. And in in a very children's movie kind of a way, they're evoking it and saying, the the lion especially, but I think the Tin Woodsman to some extent, they don't, they want to have their masculinity. I mean, nobody would have put it in those terms, but I think. Well, doesn't the lion say that he would be a dandelion if he had courage? Isn't it the opposite? Yeah, what maybe, you're saying? maybe it is. That's, uh, that's what I. That's what I thought. Right. Um, we have to look this up now. I just wasn't. Would, are you? Did you read some stuff about this as well, or are you just? This is just your opinion based on knowing the times uh, and thinking more about the lyrics. Yeah, a uh, little bit of both. Let me see. Where? What is that lion song? Courage song lyrics. Wizard of Oz. Well. What makes the something something grow? Yeah, I found some courage lyrics, but I'm looking for Dandy Lion. If I only had the nerve. Oh, wait, hold on. Oh no no no, that's the Dandy Lion song is just is is on the road. It's a different song in Oz. Yeah, it said, "Believe me, Missy, when you're born to be a sissy, without the vim and verve, but I could show my prowess. Be a lion, not a mouse. Mouse. What's mouse. that? It's like a silly oh, way of saying I understood that in the song, but reading it, I was like, what? Right. <laughs> if I only had the nerve. I'm afraid there's no denying. I'm just a dandelion. Yep. A fate I don't deserve. You're right. Yeah. I, I, okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, he's saying I'm just a dandy. I'm just an effete. Okay. I mean, cool. they, they might not quite. Cool. Nobody at the time would have copped to, we're making a commentary on homosexuality. Right. But, but I just think they were well aware of what it meant to be right. an effete Man okay. Yeah. 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 That, that makes more sense. And but the but then the Tin Woodman says, 
I'd be gentle as a lizard. Yeah. <laughs> this is very strange. <laughs> well, they needed something that rhymes with blizzard. I didn't read that line. Yeah. If he only had a heart. Um, huh. Okay. Anything else to say about the, the three dudes? It's fun. This is something that the book do, did so well, and the movie still does pretty well, at least through visual design, if not through actual defining the characters. But uh, it's nice to know what each of your... Th- what all your friends are like as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have them in clear categories in right. your head. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a fun thing. That's the thing that kids do. They categorize their friends. You got the smart one. You got the fun one. You got the one that's eh, just okay to hang out with. <laughs> you, <laughs> I mean, sorry. Kids really do this kind of thing. Yeah, no, they do. And so it's fun. It plays very well to kids. Mm. Stronger in the book, but still there in the movie. Yeah. Well, and I think... As a girl, you're going to categorize the boys, which it yep. has a little bit of that, uh, especially with Judy Garland being older than she's actually, mm-hmm. than, than the script would tell you she is. Right. Okay, so we're, we go into a field of poppies, we fall asleep, we don't get a cool, they, the mice help them out thing, right, like the right. book. You don't. We do get a Duis X Glinda I will imagine. Snow. Snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never liked that as a kid. No, I never liked it either because it didn't require anything of Dorothy or friends. No. And no. once you've established that Glenda can pop in and save the day, it's like, well, okay, Glenda, what's the deal? Yeah. There. We need more help. Can I say, I would not consider this, again, to be a flaw of the movie. I think it works just fine. But do you uh, like Glenda? Glenda. Glenda. I... Not really. She's plastic in her way. Yeah, she kind of just always has a benevolent smile on her face, slightly troubled. And I just feel like if Dorothy killed the witch, she would have that look. And if the witch fried Dorothy and ate her brain, (laughs) Glenda would still just be like, oh, yes. What's the Wicked Witch's name? I didn't even surprise it. Oh, my goodness. Elphaba? Yeah. I think. She'd be like, very poorly done, Elphaba. You know, and she... (laughs) They just wanted Glinda to be pure fairy tale, fairy queen or something. Right. That's all. Not just other. Right. And that was their way of doing it. Right. So I I, I get it. I suppose it's fine. The more old school sort of conception of royalty is that they are a little bit aloof. They are beyond our petty Mm -hmm. human problems, but... I like a more empathetic yeah. wizard or witch or helper or whatever. Magical yeah. magical being. Benign magical being. All right. We're getting to Emerald City. Right on. And we've got that funny doorman that doesn't want to let them in. Or no, we've I skipped a whole like, we're stuffing, we're uh, ha ha ha, ho ho ho. Funny old land of ah. There's that whole. Oh, I forgot that. And there's yeah, I always forget about that too. And then there's. It's like whole, I didn't just watch this movie, but a, I did. This is a horse of a different color. You've got yep. hilarious jokes like that. Yeah, that's once they get into Oz. Yes. Now, Ben, one thing about this movie that we've already talked about, but it's very apparent again in Oz, in, or sorry, in in the Emerald City, is that it is an artificial place. Mm. It, does the artifice of something like the Emerald City detract or enhance from this movie uh, viewed mm. in the year, the good year of oh, our Lord, 2023? Well, okay, let me answer. I'm just going to answer that from the point of view of, of the kid who saw this and saw Return to Oz. Right. A Return to Oz, like you said earlier, is more tactile, more fairy tale, more like this is going to, sure, it's a fairy tale, but it's going to feel like you're in an actual fantasy world with stakes and geography. Mm. We're going to make some attempts. This 
Oz has always been more abstract. Mm. It's more like, well, we're not so interested in that. I mean, we have some interest. It depends. Set to set is right. different. Yeah. But we care about the witch's castle. But we don't necessarily, I don't know. It's, we're interested in making things feel big and colorful more than we are in making them feel of a piece with right. one another. And that's a choice that I, I like the other choice. Yes. I like the choice that Return to Oz makes to make things maybe a little less glamorous and try to make them a little more of a piece so you can go from one thing to the other and you feel like this is all this. Now, I feel like I'm not articulating this very well because Oz does feel of a piece in its way, but not of a, it doesn't feel grounded. Right. Maybe groundedness is the thing. It's like you, you want the fantasy world to feel like a world you could actually walk around in. And this one just feels more arbitrary. You're going from different dream vignette to different dream vignette. or yeah. It's like a, the curtain opening on yeah. a set that's been redressed for a play or something like that. Yeah, not, yeah. You, you don't feel like you could just transport yourself there. That's right. And yeah. walk around. Yeah, and I, I liked that feeling as a kid. I wanted to feel like, oh, I could go there and walk around and have adventures there. And this movie keeps you at arm's length in that sense. It's like, no, you can't. This is a stage, and you're not one of the actors. Yes. So you can't play here. Right. You can enjoy watching us do our dancing and singing and have our adventure. But you can't play here. I always wanted to play there. Yeah. So. No, that, that makes total sense to me. I think I liked, as a kid, the iconography of the actual Emerald City in the distance as they go down the yellow brick road. I did too. Like I thought yeah. that was really cool. Yeah. And I... That evoked a kind of magical feeling. I don't know how many different like fantasy paintings and stuff I've seen over the years of just a magical city Uh far across a field or on a hill or Uh something like that. And I don't know what it is about that exactly, but it always evokes a feeling of wonder in me. Maybe just the idea of like once you're in the magic city and you have to start defining what it is, then it becomes not something that your mind can just leap at and your heart can be like, I want to go there. But there's there's something very fun about just seeing it in the distance. and Absolutely. Even in real life, approaching a a city or a location or something dramatic, you know, seeing Mm -hmm. it for the first time over the horizon is a really cool feeling. So so I like that aspect of Emerald City. Once they actually get there, it feels a little bit more just like... It's kind of a letdown. It's a little bit of a letdown. Yeah, I think that's unavoidable. Yeah. That's that's really hard. Is there any fantasy movie that there's ones that do more or less? But I I think that's just a hard thing to do. Surely, um, the uh, the water and uh, the blue cats and the water that movie the, av- the Avatar, Avatar two the way of water Avatar two actually does a pretty great job of that. Yeah, Cameron's actually really good at that sort of like. Huh. That's uh, interesting. Thing. I haven't thought about that. Like he wants mm. to just put you in that environment and make you. Love it. Right. And he wants to spend a lot of time making it as tactile as possible, but also as magical as possible. Peter Jackson tries to do that kind of thing. I think it works. He does an okay job in some cities and locations. Yes, it kind of depends place to place. Um, the more magical, the less successful for him. Yes. Lothlorien, nope. Lothlorien, very unsuccessful. Not a, not a fan. I'd say Rivendell, fairly successful, com- mm-hmm. at least relative to Lothlorien, mm-hmm. which just kind of stinks. Yeah. But actually, it's the more, like, in keeping with jackson's character and the character of what he drew out of those novels is the more warlike play like Ro- rohan i think he really loves and you can mm. that has some like there's yeah. the horse people and you have a nice little uh-huh. howard shore thing theme and they might have my favorite theme in the whole thing oh yeah i like their theme a lot it's quite cool and you yeah. have the you know awen goes and stands there and then the flag gets ripped off mm-hmm. by the wind and it's very nice and very 
feels like a place that you could go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all of which has not that much to do with Wizard of Oz, but that's okay. Huh. I'll tell you what is successful. We've talked about a few things that aren't successful. I would say the first audience with the wizard, his Definitely. scary green head, that hall that they have to go down with. That's the all really fun ar- stuff. Arches yeah. and stuff is cool. You do stop for a nonsensical lion number right in the build up to that, which uh-huh. is very strange. Oh, feel if if the movie was done today, you'd think, oh, that was a reshoot. Bert Lar was knocking it out of the park so much they uh-huh. just wanted to give him more to do. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true for all I know. But <laughs> yeah, they go. They talk to the wizard. He sends them on their quest. Right. It's quite cool. Quite modern feeling in its way. I mean, the head being superimposed mm-hmm. on the other stuff. Yeah, it looks great. Feels like a, a level of special effects that are beyond what this movie generally does Mm -hmm. uh, much more like what uh, george lucas does or something like that and then we basically go into the final confrontation Mm -hmm. go through the woods we get attacked by some monkeys and we get captured by the witch and that part i liked as a kid and i like now i think that environment which is castle actually feels more Mm three-dimensional and more tactile and more like you don't quite know where the seams are in between Mm -hmm. what's a special effect and what's an actual set Mm -hmm. i mean of course if you pause it and really look you can usually tell it's not that hard but it does it feels more like an environment and Mm -hmm. they're running around in it and i just feel like there's a lot of the dna of stuff that i loved as a kid in this like the not my favorite thing in star wars now but as a kid i really liked being in the death star sneaking around Mm -hmm. being in a stormtrooper's outfit all this kind of suspense of that Mm -hmm. sneaking through the enemy territory and having all all, their vast lesions marshaled but nobody knows you're there that that sort of feeling Uh there's some nice stuff like that yeah here i was always confused by why the witches like what happens when the time runs out there's not like a specific thing she's just she like, doesn't quite give a threat yeah she's like i'm gonna kill you kill you i, I guess think. yeah but i guess it doesn't feel entirely out of character with bomb i mean he will have some stuff that's very lightly sketched in or not that mm-hmm. well sketched in definitely he'll do that a books. lot yeah uh, and actually the whole conceit of the witch and the witches the confrontation with the witch is pretty lightly sketched in his book, uh, somewhat more sketched in here. Like they, they make the witch more of an Uber villain here and give her more, a little bit more mm-hmm. of a motivation right. than she actually has in the original text. Yeah. We've got our final confrontation. Dorothy throws some water on the witch. Uh-huh. Nice to preserve the feminine innocence of our little girl heroine by having her just accidentally kill <laughs> this evil witch. When what I well, what's funny in the book is that she kills the witch, and and when she realizes that the witch is dead and that there's just a puddle, she takes a broom and she sweeps the puddle <laughs> off off yes. of the off is of the floor. Right? It's just like well, that's no help in that. So yep. let's just clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. That is funny. There's no help in that. Yeah, I I yeah, I was always a little disappointed with the fact that water killed the witch. Like mm-hmm. yeah, that sure seems a very like a very easy way for a witch to die how's this right. woman stayed along alive for as long as she evidently has but it's fine margaret <laughs> hamilton does a great job with i'm melting i'm melting oh what a world what a world who'd have, <laughs> who'd have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness <laughs> oh look out i'm going <laughs> i just copied and pasted the the whole speech <laughs> into my notes I, I do love that and she does she is very good at uh, we, i said she earlier she brings no additional levels to the witch she does bring a healthy sense of humor to uh-huh. overplaying this character just yeah. a little bit. I mean, I don't know how you overplay an evil cackling witch, but uh-huh. she she turns it up just a little uh-huh. bit. 
One thing I did find odd is that the witch doesn't get a song. Where's her song? She's got a great little musical motif. She does have the best and most memorable musical motif. Yes. That's true. She doesn't have a song, and the wizard doesn't have a song. And then it is weird watching it this time not to give Julie... uh, What's her (laughs) Julie. (laughs) Not to give Dorothy another song. Yes. It becomes not a musical for the last third or so. Yeah. That was odd. Well, I talked about this in context. There was a big stupid number called the jitterbug that well or maybe it was great but basically they were going to meet i think princess ozma or the princess of oz at least huh. like a character called the princess of oz and she was going to make everyone perform a modern dance like this was her thing that she was trying to modernize oz and so uh-huh. somewhere towards the very end of the story i have no idea how or where this would have fit into the narrative once the story really starts cooking but they were going to do a big number mm-hmm. called the jitterbug and it was going to be like something a little bit more hip for the the modern 1939 audience of teenagers, I guess, to enjoy. <laughs> and somehow, wise heads prevailed, and we did not get that. Cool. So, yeah. I I don't know. Well, I do know. I think it was probably a smart decision. But yeah. But it would have answered your complaint that there's not enough music and towards the end all right now what is your opinion of the joke formula that is i'll go in there for dorothy wicked witch or no wicked witch guards or no guards i'll tell her tear them apart i may not come out out alive but i'm going in there there's only one thing i want you fellas to do talk me out of it <laughs> what is your opinion of that joke formula? Because I'll, t- I'll tell you who likes that joke formula is the people that made this movie. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other jokes in the film that follow that? Uh, oh, formula? I don't know. Just I couldn't name one off the top of my head, but there, there's just the kind of <laughs> sitcom of the times. Right. I'm this way. I'm really this way. Uh, you, you know, Ben, hard work is the name of the game. When you make a podcast, like, hard work is. How you get ahead in podcasting, I tell you, hard work. There's only one thing for us to do. Go to lunch. It's like that <laughs> style of, of course, like the Dick Van Dyke show or something. There'd be like 15 of those. And yeah. the, the audience will cackle every it's, time. It's a little old-fashioned, it's, I guess. It's very old-fashioned. Yeah. I, I, I kind of love it just as a <laughs> funny old thing. But I, I think maybe I'm laughing at it more than I'm laughing with it. With yeah. it. Huh. But Yeah, uh, I don't know. I can't, I'm trying to remember what I thought, because I can see, see that scene play out. Was mm. I laughing? I don't remember. You're probably... I was like, oh, okay. Had so many... Uh, you were you were so busy shivering from fright. Well, that's true. And probably <laughs> tears in your eyes from crying, and then tears uh-huh. in your eyes from laughing. You probably couldn't even barely see what was on the screen. <laughs> yep, got it down into my heart. I mean, fun fact about Ben, when... I've seen him watch this movie before, and when the Wicked Witch first shows up in her big cloud, Ben's teeth started chattering, and yeah, his teeth started chattering so hard that they broke. (laughs) They broke. (laughs) Many a dental visit from watching this movie. And he had to sweep up his teeth and (laughs) reinsert them quickly into his mouth and kind of move his lips around and make a face, and then... Mm He was just like a cartoon wolf or something like that. Right. Except for he wasn't ogling some dame. Okay, they kill the witch. They go back to the wizard. He's just that kindly, lovable dude who asserts that he's a good man. (laughs) 
even though he's a bad wizard, which is a trick that Bomb pulls in the book, too. It is, yeah. And I've never quite, even as a kid, known how to feel about, well, we <laughs> say this guy's good, but let's look at his track record here. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually just a pretty, just a kind of a jerk of a con man. Yeah, and the fact that he sent them to their deaths with, there's no way he knew that things were going to work out well for them, sending them to kill the Wicked Witch of the West. Like That's right. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. I feel like the movie plays him up as a suddenly a warm, avuncular fellow right. that you can just love even more than the book does. <laughs> yes. And the book is more like, I don't know. It, uh, the book is odd. The book just goes from irony to irony as it mm. pleases. And uh, what else does the book do? Oh, you know, I can't remember now what's movie and what's book. They're blending together along mm. with Return to Oz, and that's a problem. Maybe what the book does do is establish that the wizard basically did a good job in organizing people and helping them build the Emerald City. Yes, I think that's... Is that in the movie too? That's somewhere in both of them, maybe a okay. little bit more pronounced in one of them, I want to say the book. Yeah, okay. But So it establishes that he did them some good. Right. The citizens of Oz, not Dorothy. Right. <laughs> no, he doesn't really do her any good. No, and he doesn't through, really through. apologize. Well, maybe he kind of does. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's, it looks like he feels bad, I guess. And Frank Morgan, the actor, is likable enough. Uh-huh. I mean, he brings a lot of... It's almost like he's too likable. Like, if, if he was a little bit more of an actual con man, the character might make him a little bit more sense. But who cares? Now, I will say, and you may disagree with me on this. In fact, I suspect you will. The I like the way that the even though it's coy and more geared towards adult sensibilities than kids, I like the way that the wizard fixes their problems in the movie a little bit better. In the book, it's like he's going to give this Tin Man an actual heart. Fake made, heart. Fake heart made out of something. What does he do? He gives... What does he do for the scarecrow? The, the scarecrow gets saw he gets like sawdust, bran, and needles right. <laughs> to be his brain so that he can be sharp. Right. <laughs> and he has brands. Just <laughs> kind of like brains. Right. Yeah, and, and I love it. And he like they have to cut open the tin man's tin chest and put in this heart and then solder it back together. And I guess the cowardly lion gets a medal or something. But I, yeah, I love all of that because it feels very, it feels all the more fairy tale and, 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 yeah. and absurd. And like the Tin Man gets taken apart a lot of times and put back together. It just happens to him. So it's right. not, not a big deal. I'm a fan of all that. Yeah. I mean, I like it in the book too, but I actually do. I think if I had to choose, I prefer the silly little lessons from the. Uh-huh. And the scintillating political commentary of the time, you know, just the lots of men who don't have brains have something that you don't have, a diploma. Maybe maybe there's a little part of me that's laughing at that as as opposed to with it too, but I I don't know. I enjoy it. It's fun. There are old movies that you just enjoy for, even if it's not exactly Uh your sense of humor or your, the the century's sense of humor, you enjoy like, that's that's what my great grandma thought was funny. (laughs) Uh, It's a Wonderful Life has jokes like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Okay, so so yeah, then we get to the end of the movie, which again, don't take any of these things that I say as criticisms, folks. I, I really love this movie, but I just think it's interesting how it works because she's going to go home. She's going to clip. And the whole message is that she wants to go back and she needs to go back. And this is something that I don't like in the books. This is something that Return to Oz fixes as a movie, mm-hmm. actually, I think, because it leaves the door open so that Dorothy mm-hmm. can basically go back to Oz whenever she yeah, wants. Yep. Which to me is a much more satisfying ending. Maybe not as full of wistful longing and melancholy. Maybe it's a more kid ending. But 
I do not resonate with Dorothy wanting to go back into sepia-toned Kansas with mm-hmm. Elmira Gulch threatening to destroy her dog. Like that does not. The, you've got a much better deal here, kid. What are you uh-huh. thinking? I do not think that the movie successfully makes me agree with Dorothy that there's no place like home. Like, yeah, there isn't any place like home because home sucks. Like, I feel like home sucks less in the movie than in the book. Because in the movie, at least... There's some warmth in the way that the lady plays Auntie M. That's right. Yeah, That's right. In the books, it's like Aunt M already kind of gave up on life. She's just a gray old lady. She never laughs. She doesn't know what to think when Dorothy's happy. She can't take it. Well, and Ben just basically gave you everything that the book gives you. It's like a couple pages of that, and then Dorothy goes to Oz. That we really don't spend any time. And the whole conceit of there's different characters that mirror people that Dorothy knows that have their mirror selves and their eyes. counterparts, yeah. Invented whole cloth for the movie. Yeah, that, the books don't do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, to me, I feel like it's the equivalent of if Luke Skywalker went back to Owen's, Uncle Owen's farm at the end of Star Wars, like what a letdown that would be. Like, no, kid, you could want to be fighting the Empire and becoming a Jedi. Although I will admit, maybe it's a more domestic kind of that's what Girl I was adventure. just going to say. That's what I was just going to say. I think it does make sense on some emotional level for Dorothy just to want to be back home. Right. Yeah. And maybe as pure feminine archetype, what a woman is looking for is a home, whereas what a boy is looking for is an adventure. Mm-hmm. And he can never go home again once he uh-huh. leaves the home and becomes what he needs to become. Mm-hmm. Once he goes on the hero's journey, and might as well not avoid just saying the, the stupid phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like Luke Skywalker can't go back home, but Dorothy must go back home. And so there is, at least as old Hollywood saw it, there was an archetypal difference between a girl adventure story and a boy adventure story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess I, I guess maybe I just don't like Dorothy's story because it's a girl's story. Anything else to say about Wizard of Oz? Anything we didn't hit? I don't think so. How many flying monkeys out of, oh, by the way, if I didn't say it before, what they are saying in the song is all we own, we owe. It is a depression all we own, we owe. That's what the monkeys are saying. Really? In that song. I never knew that. There are lyrics to that song, but it just sounds like they're saying a nonsense phrase, and that's what everyone oh, assumes. Oh, we owe. Oh, we owe. That's what I heard. Oh, we owe. Oh, but if you actually listen, they say, uh-huh. all we own, and then eventually they'll, they go, we owe. It's like, wow. A, it's a depression. <laughs> that's really funny. I mean, I, I watched that scene through the lens of the Wreck It Ralph parody. Mm-hmm. Which has Oreo cookies right. standing on guard. Oreo, <laughs> Oreo. It's pretty hilarious. How many? So you didn't give me a number. Oh, sorry. Of flying monkeys. Uh, Forty flying monkeys. I, I will be the. Eh, I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. Person on the podcast. I'll give it. I don't want to be ungenerous or something. I'm going to give it 32. Okay. Well, that contractually obliges me to give it more because I need to represent. There's only two of us, so that's right. I need to represent the person who loves this movie and i do i'll give it a full compliment i'll give it 39 i mean i'll dock there are some things that haven't aged as well but but we didn't didn't talk much about judy garland's performance i talked a lot about her life i like what she does there is the weirdness of her playing a character who's clearly younger than she is and that is a little strange but she does a good job she's a thoughtful actress who's always looking and thinking and showing real intelligence in the way that she regards this world around her as she looks at the scarecrow. As she takes in stuff. You can see her mind working. And that's something that not many actors can do. A great star like that can. But 
If you think, I, I don't know what to compare it to, but if, if you think about a movie like this that doesn't work, it's often because there's, there's just a zero at the uh-huh. center of it. Someone who can't just hold their own surrounded by all these wacky, whimsical things. And uh-huh. and she's quite good at that. No, sort. she's great. She is. She's great. And she's got obviously got a great, great singing voice and good at dancing. Uh-huh. All that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, so it got, if you do the averages, something like a 35 monkey score. Yeah. I think that's right. Something like that. Congratulations, Wizard of Oz. You got 35 monkeys. Now we'll see what happens with Return to Oz, a uh, very different film, shall we say. (laughs) Yes. But a good one. Just do not watch it expecting the MGM movie. That is the one way that you will set yourself up to not like it. And it's the way that everyone set themselves up to not Uh like it when it came out. That's too bad. But if you can just take it on its own. I don't even know that you want to principally be looking for the bomb books. I think you just want to be looking for a good 80s. I don't want to quite say dark fantasy. It's not that dark, but it's a, a kind of weird 80s. If you like the bomb books, I think you're more likely to like it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah that's, that, true. that's true. I, I will not dispute that. Okay, Return to Oz next time. Wizard of Oz this time. That's what we just did. If you were wondering, do you think that there's someone who's like wondering what they just listened to? Yeah, could be. Could be. Well... You just listen to a podcast on the Wizard of Oz. Now, Ben, if they wanted to support this podcast on the Wizard of Oz, they're just like, I want to write a check to these guys. Oh, yeah, that's easy. Yeah, you just go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies and you support us. Yep. Yeah. I don't know if you may not actually be able to write a check there, but. If you want to write us a check, just get in touch. We'll give you a mailing address. Mm -hmm. You can certainly rack up your credit card. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's the way. All you own, you'll owe. Okay. (laughs) Until next time. And your little dog, too. And your little dog, too. We finished what we had to say before the music started.